Well, good morning, and we are in the second week of our study, which is entitled For the Glory of God, which is focusing on biblical worship. Now, last week we looked at who we worship, and in that we looked at Exodus 6, and we came away with three big takeaways. Number one was that we worship a God who keeps his promises. Number two, a God who provides redemption. And then number three, a God who pursues us. And so Exodus 6 taught us who it is that we worship on a weekly basis. Now today we're going to answer the second question in our series, which is why do we worship? Tim Keller, the, the great Presbyterian minister, uses this phrase in a lot of his books. Everyone is worshiping something. It might not be the God of the Bible, but rest assured that you and I are worshiping something every single day of our lives. It might be that we are worshiping our family. We are giving ultimate value and we are ascribing our worth based on who our family says that we are. Another way to think about this would be our careers. Our careers are something that we find great satisfaction and fulfillment in. We have been created to work. The Bible makes that very clear early in the chapters of Genesis. But when our work becomes the ultimate thing in our lives, it can be a problem. Even though society would applaud somebody who works hard and spends all of their time at the office because you can get wealth and fame and prestige from being good at your job. So we know that our family, our career, and wealth, these are good things that are prized by many in our society, and God can even use those things to bless us. But when they become the ultimate thing in our lives and they are taken from us, we crumble. Carl Truman, who is a professor up in Grove City College in Pennsylvania, wrote a really important book this past year called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's probably, in my opinion, the most, one of the most important books that came out in 2020. And what he does in this book is he chronicles historically how our society has gotten to the point where the self is actually what we worship. So in the book, he highlights a sociologist by the name of Philip Reef, who taught at Penn for a number of years. And this sociologist traced four areas where humanity has typically found fulfillment. First, man found fulfillment in politics during the time of Aristotle and Plato. Humanity primarily found fulfillment through their engagement in the public square. And as you keep moving along in history, next came the period known as the religious man. This would have been during the time of the Middle Ages, where a person found their, their primary worth, their primary involvement and fulfillment through religious activities. Then the third area was what we call the economic man. This is the individual who finds his satisfaction and his fulfillment in his trade and in the making of money. So let me give you an example of this. My grandparents, my great 
grandparents, 75, 100 years ago, people oftentimes were in jobs that they didn't actually love. But it didn't matter because they found their fulfillment in being able to provide for their family. I bet many of you watching today could tell me, yeah, my parents, my grandparents, they hated their job, but they found fulfillment in being able to provide for me and my siblings. And so that's the third way that humanity thought was through the economic man. They found contentment in being able simply to provide for their family, even if they didn't love their job. But where we are today, there's a fourth category of man, and that is what we call psychological man. And that's, that's where we are today. That is, humanity is on an inward quest for personal psychological happiness. And no matter what anyone else says, no matter what laws might be passed, anything that goes against the personal internal fulfillment of a person, they're going to resist that. So this is what we call psychological man. You have to be authentic to who you say that you are. Whatever brings you personal fulfillment is right, and that is what you pursue. And you do that by ultimately being true to yourself. So I share some of this just to, to give you an idea of that the Bible doesn't teach that, okay? There is a better way. And in our passage today, I hope to show you that Jesus is the better way. We don't look for fulfillment inside of ourselves. We have to look for fulfillment outside of ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that's our passage for today. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, it provides a better way for us to function in society. And it tells us to worship Jesus. And it teaches us not to find fulfillment in who we say that we are, but who Jesus says that we are. Now, the reason I chose this text, it's one of the most powerful passages in all of the New Testament, but many scholars and Bible teachers believe that Philippians 2, 5 through 11 was actually used in worship services in the early church. Many people think that this was a Christian hymn, that the church gathered together and they sang this. And so whether Paul inserted this hymn into the text or he wrote it himself, it's a powerful passage, beginning in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is Philippians 2, 5 through 11 teaching us about this question of why do we worship? Number one, we worship because Jesus emptied himself. Now we need a little bit of background on Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. The great thing about all of Paul's letters is that they match up historically with his missionary journeys. So you can learn about the church at Philippi through reading this letter, or you can go back and match up the details of this letter with what is chronicled in the book of Acts. So you can go actually to Acts chapter 16 and you'll find all of this information about Paul's experiences in Philippi and the conversion of Lydia and the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And I think that's a really cool aspect of the scriptures is that we can read the book of Philippians we can also see how in the book of Acts, which was written at a different time, historically they match up. So what does the text mean when it says here in Philippians, Jesus emptied himself? Well, believe it or not, that's actually somewhat of a controversial phrase. Is Philippians 2.7 teaching us that Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature or of any of his divine attributes, there was actually in the early 19th century a subset of theologians who actually believed this to be true, and it became known as the kenosis theory. And it holds that Christ gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth as a man. And the term kenosis is taken from the Greek word, which means to empty. And despite the kenosis theory gaining some traction, as I said earlier, amongst German scholars, if you read the entirety of the Bible and you read other passages in the New Testament, there's just no way that Jesus gave up his divine attributes. Because if he did that, then he's giving up his divinity. And we know that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. So let's Let's look at some of the other passages in the New Testament to show how this actually can't be true. If you want to jump in your Bible and go over to actually Colossians, and I believe it's Colossians chapter 3. No, maybe it's Colossians. Well, I know it's in Colossians, okay? And in that passage, it talks about Jesus uh, not emptying himself of his divine nature. I want to find that verse. It's really, really important that we do. Maybe it's chapter 2. Yes, here it is. Chapter 2, verse 9. Well, let's start in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, here's the key verse. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, Hebrews 1.3 is another one. 
Here's what it says. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus was seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven with everything that he would have needed. And he gave that up. John 5.18 in the Gospels, this is another one. It says this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. So, when we read those passages against Philippians 2.7, it's almost impossible that 2.7 here is saying that Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature. Does that make sense? You see, you have to get into the whole of Scripture. And when you read the whole of Scripture, you see that the answer is no. Jesus did not empty himself of his divine attributes or his divine status. So what is he emptying himself of? Well, he's emptying himself of his status, of the privilege that he had in heaven where there were servants attending to him. There were people that were waiting on him hand and foot. And instead, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. This is not normal behavior for a mere human. Most people, me, you, we desire to be served, not to serve. Jesus did just the opposite. It's hard enough for us as followers of Jesus to serve others. It's, it's a struggle sometimes. Now imagine being Jesus and realizing that you have everything you need at your disposal and yet you still choose to serve other people. This is why we worship Jesus, because he serves us. He attends to our needs, he provides for us, and ultimately he loves a fallen humanity. What a glorious truth that is. And it's mind-boggling almost to even comprehend that this morning. So why do we worship Jesus? Because he emptied himself. Number two, why do we worship Jesus? Because he humbled himself. It wasn't just that Jesus came in the flesh, although that alone, in my opinion, makes him worthy of worship, but it's that when he came in the flesh, he also humbled himself in the flesh. You see, he didn't exalt himself. He stayed low. Now, one of the greatest images of this in the Gospels is the triumphal entry. You know the story well. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters in to the great city of Jerusalem. And how does he enter into the city? He enters into the city on a donkey with regular people waving palm branches as he entered the city. A donkey not a great stallion with military procession in front of him and behind him, a donkey, which was a symbol of peace. When I think of donkey, I think of Eeyore, okay? Most kings and rulers rode in on a great horse, which was a symbol of power and war. But the type of humility that Paul is talking about here 
is deeper than simply riding on a donkey. Let me explain. All of us can perform certain acts that can portray to other people that we are humble. But while the action reveals humility, the heart could still be full of pride. See, we all know what types of behavior give off the impression that we're humble. But in our hearts, sometimes the reason we're acting with humility is because we want people to think that we're humble, which is in itself a sign of pride. So even when we try to be humble, we often have ulterior motives. And this is not the way that it was with Jesus. This is not the type of humility that Jesus displayed for us. I'm sorry, the sun is hitting me at a really bad angle, so I'm trying to flip it around here. Jesus displayed for us humility that was different. It was authentic. It was sincere. And it was motivated by nothing but love for other people. So oftentimes, our humility is driven by a desire to make ourselves look better. Jesus didn't do this. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make himself look better. He gained nothing for himself through his death on the cross. It was done completely for you and for me out of love and concern for all of humanity. So Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate act of obedience. And the act of obedience made all the difference in the world, not only for you, but for me to have a relationship with God. And this act of obedience should lead us to worship, which brings us to our third point today. Not only did Jesus empty himself of his status and then humble himself, but number three, our only response to the emptying of Jesus and the humility of Jesus is to worship. Number three, our only response is worship. How could we read this early Christian hymn and walk away with anything but bowing down on our knees to Jesus? The response is that we have to worship. Now, notice the flow of the text here, okay? So look at verse 8. i got to flip back over. Philippians 2.8, it begins with Jesus' humility. And then in verse 9, we see that God exalts him. Matthew 23.12, Jesus himself said this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So exercising true humility leads to being exalted. Verse 8, humility. Verse 9, exaltation. Verse 9 is communicating that as a result of Jesus emptying himself and humbling himself unto death, God's response to that is that Jesus will be exalted and he will give him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. No name carries with it the power, the grace, the mercy and love that Jesus carries with it. 
And then the name of Jesus leads us to bow down. Now this text is not communicating that only followers of Jesus will bow down. It does say every knee will bow down. So even though in this life, people worship a variety of things like we talked about earlier, they worship their careers, they worship their possessions, they worship their children, they worship their own bodies. Ultimately, everyone will bow down to, excuse me, will bow down to Jesus. Jesus will ultimately receive the worship of everyone, whether they choose to worship him in this life or not. And here is where we find the urgency of the gospel, of getting the gospel out to as many people as we possibly can. People need to worship Jesus in this life because if they don't, if they don't worship him in this life and they worship other things, one day after this life is over, they're going to be forced to worship Jesus, but it, it won't be the same. This text makes very clear that heavenly beings and earthly beings, and it says people under the earth, so demonic beings, everyone will all worship Jesus. And we have examples of this in the Gospels. There are stories where demons will actually confess that Jesus is the Son of God. But is that saying that those demons were somehow followers of Jesus? I mean, were they saved? No. So Paul is not teaching here that in the end, everyone is going to be saved. Just because someone bows down to Jesus does not mean that they are a Christian. Universalism, which is the idea that at the end of time, okay, everyone is going to be saved, whether or not they acknowledge Jesus as Savior in their life or not. That's not what this is teaching. Okay, there is no universalism. Not everyone is going to bow down and be allowed into heaven at the end. The entirety of Scripture is very clear. It doesn't teach that. That's why you and me have an urgency in this life to take the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members, to our coworkers, because they need to come to faith in Christ in this life before they are forced to bow down to him in the next life. So this is why our, our Lottie Moon goal was so important, right? We as a church set the goal of $50,000. Right now, we're currently at $57,000 plus dollars that we have raised. And I'm so excited about that and so grateful and thankful to you guys for your faithful giving. But we want to exhaust our money and our time and our resources to help missionaries around the world get the gospel out to unreached people groups who need to understand and believe that what Jesus has done for them is the only thing that will save them. Now, the term Lord in this passage, it's used three ways typically in the Greek text. First, it can be like a sign of respect, like using the word sir. It's a sign of just being polite and showing that somebody is of a higher status than you are. 
And another way that the Greek text often uses Lord is that it was used when referring to the master of slaves or one who had many servants. But that's not the way Lord is being used in this passage in Philippians 2. It's being used quite differently, actually. In this passage, in the third way of understanding Lord is in play, and that is one who is absolutely sovereign. Jesus has complete control and authority over everything that happens in the world. We talk a lot, I talk a lot in my sermons about the sovereignty of God. He is Lord and he's over everything. And because of that, our response to him must be worship. Now here's the great part about calling Jesus Lord. When we do that and we mean it deep in our hearts and souls, this text ends by telling us that God gets glory from it. We bring glory to God when we worship Jesus. So, why do we worship? Because Jesus emptied himself. Because Jesus humbled himself. And because of those two things, number three, our only response is to worship. It's my prayer and desire that perhaps someone listening today who maybe has heard the gospel, the message of Jesus, hundreds of times. Perhaps today they will worship him for the first time, that they would confess their sin to Jesus, ask him to forgive them of their sin, and trust that what Jesus did on the cross for them is the only thing that will make them right with God. And then as a response, they will bow down and worship to him. If you would like to talk more about making a decision to follow Jesus today, I would love to have a conversation with you. Go to our website. You can email me, taylor at fbcdothan.org. You can leave a comment on our Facebook feed, and somebody will be in touch with you about what it means to follow after Jesus. We worship Jesus because he humbled himself and because he emptied himself. That is our response to the magnificent story of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this beautiful, crisp morning with the sun shining. And today we worship you as a church family. We weren't able to gather together in the room, but we're in our homes, worshiping with our families. And we're worshiping a God who sent Jesus, who emptied himself of his status and humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross for you or for, for us. And for that, I'm grateful. So God, I pray that if there's anyone here today who needs to know more about Jesus and what he did for them, that they would take the step of reaching out to somebody, asking a friend, contacting me, contacting our church so that we could share with them what it means to truly worship Jesus. God, we thank you for this time of worship today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.